Father, I can't imagine preaching, um, talking about your word without first bowing humbly before you and giving honor and glory to the only one who could save our souls and take us up out of the muck and mire and set us on solid ground. And so, Lord, we ask you right now to bless this time, to give us wisdom, ears to hear, eyes to see. God, may we be people who don't just listen to cogent things from your word, but men and women who then go out and are are doers of it as well. So, God, with that commitment behind it, we just commit this time to you now. And we do so only and always in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Well, think about it with me, folks. One thing that our modern world is not short on is vision. I mean, say what you will about modern-day America, but one thing that we're not short on is vision. I mean, we have vision today for space exploration. We have vision for economic development and now economic problem-solving. We have vision for the environment. We have vision for how to handle retirement. We have vision for health care. We have vision for environmentally friendly cars. We have vision for democracy overseas. We have vision for education. I mean, we have vision for our children, ourselves, our parents, our grandparents, those in need. Certainly our culture is not short on vision. It's the American way. For more than 200 years now, our country has been all about vision, dreaming big dreams and then running hog wild in the direction of those dreams. And though we might not always agree with a particular vision that our politicians or societal leaders come up with, and that's okay because we do live in a free country, the one thing that we can't argue with is that our nation is a nation of vision, and vision, when you get right down to it, is a good thing. That's what we all need to glean. That vision, by its very nature, is a good thing. In fact, I would argue that it's a God thing. There's actually a famous passage from the Proverbs in the Old Testament that most people quote. And when they quote it, they quote it out of the King James. Look up here on the screen. It goes like this. It says, where there is no vision, the people perish. You might have heard that before. Where there's no vision, the people perish. I always laugh when people quote this to me because it's the only time that a modern day person ever quotes the King James. And they don't even know that they're doing it. But this is a good rendering of this passage. I actually have one little problem, however, with the way the King James put this. It's it's a little bit too strong. It's a little bit hyperbolic in nature. Uh, Look up here on the screen. Look at how the ESV puts this passage. It says it this way. It says, where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. They cast off restraint. That phrase, cast off restraint, is one little Hebrew word in the original language that the Old Testament was written in. It's the Hebrew word gerah. And get this, it literally means to let loose, to let run wild. That's the idea. It carries with it the picture that something has been let alone and is now exposed, unprotected, and doesn't have any direction. Kind of like if you were to let a nice little innocent house pet alone in the wild, we all know that that would be a catastrophe because that house pet would go off, wouldn't even know where to go, be kind of directionless, and be exposed to all kinds of dangers. That's what this passage is saying. It's simply saying that people without a unified, God-given vision are going to lack direction. They're going to cast off restraint, be somewhat exposed and directionless in their lives. And so whether they perish or not, who knows? But at the very least, they're going to flounder a bit and they're going to wonder what life is about and what their lives should be about. And folks, when you get that, that truly is what vision is about. It gives direction. It gives you and me something to sink our teeth into. It helps us navigate this world and keeps us focused on what is most important when it comes to our attention and our allegiance and our energy. And so in the midst of all the various visions and aspirations that our world puts before us, as I've been leading up to, your church has a vision. 
Isn't that cool? Your church has a vision. And we believe that it is a God-given, God-infused vision that comes straight out of His Word. So look up here on the screen. Here's our vision. And that is that our vision is to become to the kind of community that trusts God with an unwavering faith and then loves others with a Jesus-like unconditional love that lets people know how good, holy, and truthful God really is. And so we're about creating a community here at Scottsdale Bible. Not buildings, not programs, not a bunch of religious policies, but a community of Christ followers who are marked, who are known for an unwavering faith. Man, they just trust God as well as an unconditional love. That they love people around them with a head-turning kind of love in which they go, whoa, what's gotten into you? And as many of you know, we've established, we've created, attached five key vision initiatives to our vision. Five key things that we believe are going to give us some feet to our vision over the next few years that will help us all know what we can and should do as a congregation. And we've called it Vision 2010 because we hope that by the end of 2010, we're going to be well on our way to accomplishing these five things that are going to help us focus on our vision. And one of the reasons I like calling it Two Vision 2010 as well is that it's time-sensitive. I don't know if you guys have noticed, but I'm a goal-oriented kind of pastor. And so if we don't have something to shoot for, then how are we going to know if we've hit it? So these are things that, though we're not going to be perfect at it by the end of 2010, we're saying by the end of 2010, let's try to be firing on at least seven out of eight cylinders here. And so what I want to do in the rest of our time this morning is recap these initiatives. I want to give you an update on how we're doing, and then maybe, even maybe, entice you to get fired up once again about what we believe God is doing in this church of ours called Scottsdale Bible. And to guide us in our understanding of these things, I want to read for you a passage. I think I've read it to you before, but I want to read it to you again. It's a passage out of the New Testament book of Acts that describes what took place during the formation of that very, very first New Testament church. It's found in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. So if you have a Bible, you're going to want to turn there because we're going to park here for the rest of our time this morning. Acts 2, 42 through 47. And the context is really simple to get. Jesus just ascended into heaven. There was about 130 believers gathered together, not a very large group. The day of Pentecost came, Peter preached one sermon, and over 3,000 people came to Christ. So this is like the first megachurch in the Bible. Can we all get that? That's really what's happening here. It's like the first megachurch. All of a sudden going from 130 to 3,000 people. And verses 42 to 47 of chapter 2 tell us what they did. So let's read about it. It says this. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, the first thing I need you guys to see in this passage here is precisely where this newly formed church met. I mean, we know it was in Jerusalem, but within Jerusalem, did you pick up precisely where they met? Anybody see where they met? Where? In the temple. Exactly. They met in the temple, and then it says in one other place they met, it was in homes. 
Okay? So look at verse 46 there again. It very clearly says that they met in the temple and then in their homes. And this would only make sense. They didn't have church buildings back then, at least the new Christians didn't, but they still had to house over 3,000 of these people for worship and teaching and fellowship. And so they met in the Jewish temple for regular teaching, and they'd eventually get kicked out of there, and then in homes to do all the other spiritual business, like fellowshipping together, celebrating communion, sharing their lives, and praying. And though Bible experts would tell you that the reason they did this was for practical and pragmatic reasons, in other words, it just made sense to meet in the temple for teaching and homes for fellowship, I sometimes wonder if in God's design this was not all part of the plan. In other words, we all know that God is sovereign. He could have given them any place to meet in, and yet He chose in His economy to have this very first Christian church meet in homes. Think about it. Homes where families reside, where children play, where grandparents visit, or even lived back then, where heated words as well as words of affirmation live side by side, where arguments and disagreements ride high, but commitment and love ride higher. It was in homes, in this kind of setting, that God chose to have the very first Christian church do most of their spiritual and relational business in homes. And so at the very least, folks, this underscores the value that God puts on the family, for it was in the midst of the family that God chose to have His first church meet and interact together. And so for this reason, that our very first initiative is this, and that is to develop a significant family focus here at SBC. To develop a significant family focus at SBC. Simply put, that if God chose to nurture His very first Christian church in the womb of a family, then the least we can do is emphasize and champion the family as we continue to build His church here in Scottsdale in the 21st century. And so that's what we've been doing. But we've been focusing over the last couple of years on kind of reestablishing the family here at our church. But i got to tell you, really honestly, it's a lot more tricky in our church than I thought. It's a lot more tricky than I thought. Let me explain so that we're all on the same page here. You see, unlike many large megachurches in the United States that are relatively new, most of them are new, they're about 10 or 20 years old, and they're filled with young people, and hence they have worship styles, programs, and staff that are basically a one-size-fits-all, We here at Scottsdale Bible are an established church, almost half a century old. And hence, we have a diverse age demographic, spanning three, sometimes even four generations in one church. I mean, think about it, folks. We have our share of builders, boomers, busters, and millennials all in one church. Like, whoa! I mean, we have all the different demographics that people talk about when they talk about church just within our church alone, and quite many of them. And yet at the same time, and i got to say this sensitively, I know, but let's just be honest, we're also a church that has aged over the years. Can we all own that? I mean, we're 50 years old as a church, and when you look around on Sunday morning... Well, need I say any more? And so the real trick for us is to make way for younger families while also still honoring and ministering to and involving what one author calls the foundational families. I like that phrase, foundational families. And so we clearly need to get younger, but we also need to maintain or retain the wisdom and seasoned maturity that we have in our church as well. That's the trick. That's the tightrope that we walk. 
And so let me just share with you some of the things we've been doing. This is just our, our first stab at this. Look up here on the screen. Uh, one of the first things we've done to kind of focus on younger families is we started our 1110 video venue last January. This is a video venue that occurs across campus during the 1115 hour, and it's fully contemporary in its worship style, and then they funnel the sermon in live. And I just got to tell you, from the day it started, we were packed out. It seats about 450 to 500 people over there, and it's just been packed out. We're down in the summer now because every, every place is down in the summer. But in our high season, there's just, it's just all young families. And it's been really exciting to see that happen. In tandem with that, we started two new enrichment classes last fall under Dave Otto's leadership, and they have been a wild success, faith forward and strong families. And then Dave's telling me we're starting two more this fall. So we're developing enrichment classes for younger families. We've been in the process of retooling our children and youth ministries, and this is a huge task. Uh, We've been in the process of putting together a search team for a new children's pastor, and we're well on our way to doing that, as well as we're doing a lot of changes behind the scenes to make our children's and youth ministries a lot more attractive to younger families. We're even starting a Wednesday evening family night this fall where we're going to have Awana and then something for teenagers and then adult classes as just kind of an option for those who might not tend an enrichment class. Uh, We've been developing a stronger second half ministries. Those are all things for younger families. But about a year ago, we hired Bob Kane. And Bob Kane is one of our older elders. He's about 70 plus years old, but he is about as feisty and driven as they come. And he's just the perfect guy to lead our second half ministries. And he has just come in and done gangbusters. He's a graduate of West Point. And just to show you how feisty he is, I'm going to read you his email he sent to me before he left town Thursday. You ready for this? I just howled. He says, all staff. For the next week or so, I will be floating mindlessly on Lake Powell, tempting the little fishes with dangling worms. If you need anything from me during that time, too bad, Bob Kane. (laughs) That's the guy running our second half ministries. Isn't that great? And uh, we just love him. And and he's re-engaging many of our second half folks, many of our foundationals in areas of hearty souls and service and such. And so it's exciting. And then we're continuing to strengthen our men's, our women's, our marriage, and our counseling ministries, which are huge ministries in our church. We're continuing just to pour prayer and energy into those. And the point is, and I say this humbly, is that it's working. Uh, Obviously, attendance is up, and more importantly, involvement is up. And we're seeing younger families once again come while also re-engaging our foundationals. But what you need to know this morning is that there's still a lot of work to do. There is. And so here's the deal. And just a little bit this morning, we're going to ask you the key question that's behind me on these marquees, and that is, what about you? That's the key question. What about you? And we're going to ask you where you are when it comes to investing your time and energy and prayers in kingdom activity through your church. And there are some, if not many of you here today, that when I talk about the family, you say, man, do I have a heart for the family? You say, I got a heart for the family. I, I, I'm just touched by the family. My, my passion level rides high for the family. And there are some of you here today that say, man, I, I guess I don't have a heart for the family, but I feel God's calling me to have a heart for the family. And so if that is you, if you resonate with this, then maybe as you commit here at the end of our service, I'll tell you how that's going to work, maybe it's time for you to think about serving in our retooled children's ministry or youth ministry. Or maybe God's going to call you to join one of our new enrichment classes. Or maybe He's going to call you to participate in our Wednesday evening family night. He might call you just to be a prayer warrior for the family. Our families need lots of prayer. 
Or how about this? Maybe he'll call you to do something outside of Scottsdale Bible Church that strengthens a family, like adoption, foster care, family advocacy but with some of the groups around here, or big brother, big sister. He might even call you to start something new at your church for blended families or single-parent families, which obviously uh, have great needs. But it's a clear vision of your church, just simply know this, to be about developing a family focus. So what about you? That's the question I need you to ask yourself. What about you? And now, as we set up our second vision initiative here, I want to tell you a story. And it's a story that I heard from a pastor in the Midwest that he told a while back that happened to him growing up. And I think you're going to like this story. It's actually kind of humorous when you get down to it. This pastor grew up in a small town in Michigan back in the 1950s and 1960s. His dad was a very successful businessman in this small town and also a very strong churchman. They went to church on a regular basis. And the church that they went to was a traditional Dutch Reformed church. And he tells the story that the church he grew up in was amazing when it came to its emphasis on family. They preached the word regularly. They had a very high view of the sovereignty of God. And in so many ways, there was blessings growing up in a church like that. But he also said that the church he grew up in was not known for its scintillating sermons. It was kind of traditional nature, using music that was three, four hundred years old. Its programs were mainly for the members. And so if you were in, you were in. But if you were out, well, you were out. Many of you know churches like that. And so one day his dad and he were driving down the road and his dad was just casually talking to him. He was in junior high at the time. The son, his dad said, you know, son, uh, one of my uh, business acquaintances has shown some interest in spiritual things. And uh, I was thinking about inviting him to church. And before this young pastor-to-be could even think about what he was saying, he blurted out, don't do it, dad, it'll ruin it. And his dad was taken aback at that, and he said, what are you talking about? He said, Dad, if he has an interest in spiritual things, take him out for a cup of coffee, give him a book, give him a track, do something like that, but don't bring him to church, because it will probably turn him off more than it will turn him on. And when that son heard himself say those words, that sparked a passion in him that church would be the kind of place that would be friendly to lost people so that they might come and find Christ. And folks, when I heard that story years ago, I thought that is a story that I believe so many of us could tell. I call it the cringe factor. The reality that church, for many of us who are already convinced, is safe and great. And that's awesome. But for those of us that aren't already saved, well, it's a cringe factor. And so in light of this, here's the second initiative, and that is that we need to create a culture of evangelism here at Scottsdale Bible Church. We need to create a culture of evangelism. I want you to go back to our text because you need to see how this was such an integral driving part of the first century Acts 2 church. Look at what it says there in verse 47. And again, realize that in the midst of all the things that they were doing, teaching, praying, fellowshipping, communion, sharing with the poor, notice what it all led to here in the description as it wraps up in verse 47. It says, And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Focus on that little phrase, day by day. When you hear that phrase, day by day, what do you think of? Be honest, what do you think of? You think of that song, don't you? I do. I think of that song from Godspell. Do you all remember that? Day by day. This is why I'm not in the choir. Day by day. 
To see thee more clearly, to love thee more dearly, to follow thee more nearly. That deserves a clap, by the way, right there. So um, anyways, um, day by day. And so that's what we think of. We, we think of that thing. And, and, and isn't it sad? Because when we think of day by day, if you think about that song, we're thinking about all the ways that we can know and love God, right? And that's what that song's about. It's fascinating. If you were ask a first century church person what they thought of when they thought of that phrase day by day, they didn't think about themselves and God. They thought about lost people and God. Do you see that? They thought about how every day lost people are coming to know Christ through my church. And folks, that phrase, day by day, in the original Greek, is the phrase kata hemera. And it literally means, and that's the reason I tell you this, according to each day. That's the most rote translation, according to each day. The idea being that each day in this newly formed church, as they were worshiping and teaching and fellowshipping and serving together, that people were coming to faith in Christ for the first time, according to each day, day by day. And as we all know, the whole rest of the book of Acts will be about this expansive evangelistic missionary activity as a church would literally lead thousands of people to faith in Christ. I mean, it will go on to talk about Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, Saul on the road to Damascus, Timothy, the Philippian jailer and his family. Entire towns and regions would be revolutionized with the gospel of Christ as towns like Ephesus and Corinth and Thessalonica and Galatia, eventually even Rome itself. Please see, folks, it's a culture of evangelism. And the first century church nailed it, and God was honored, and people were saved as a result of this. And so the point is, is that we too here at Scottsdale Bible Church need to develop a stronger culture of evangelism, and that's just what we're embarking on now. And I can't tell you how excited I am about this. Now look up here on the screen. Last uh, January is a first step to this. Again, just around seven, eight months ago, I uh, got back from my study break and I just preached my heart out on Luke chapter 15. I did a three-week series called Search and Rescue. And the reason that I tell you about this is because if some of you are going, now what was that series about again? Then you need to get the CDs. You need to go to the website and download it again because I'm telling you, that's my best shot at helping us understand God's heart for lost people, which is where it all begins. That lost people matter to God. Ergo, they should matter to us. And that was the whole point of the series. And then from there, we've started a task force on evangelism. In other words, we've chosen some of our strongest leaders. People like Fred Beasley and Steve Erickson from our staff. And then some young, strong leaders like Michael Regan, Mario D'Artenzio, Dave Hall. And we're adding a couple gals to it as well to brainstorm with us on how we can get our body more mobilized for evangelism. And so they're talking about things like a killer seminar on how to do relational evangelism. Wouldn't you love to learn to do that? I mean, the problem with evangelism today is that we've still made it more of a technique than a relationship. And that's so sad. Because if a lost person around you feels like that they're just a project in which you're trying to get them saved, they'll run like the plague. I would too. But if you treat them as a human being and love people in your sphere of influence that you relate to and care about them, that's what it's all about. We want to help you learn to do that. We're targeting three or four no-cringe events in 2010 that you can invite lost people to. Wouldn't that be cool? No-cringe events. I'll tell you more about those as we go along. And then the third thing that we're doing, and this is more nebulous, but it's just important, is to develop an atmosphere of friendliness to seekers who visit our church. 1 Corinthians 14, you can read it later, assumes 
then in the midst of our doing business with God, there will be unconvinced people in our midst. Did you know that? It assumes that the church will have lost people investigating the claims of Christ. And so we simply need to have an atmosphere here that recognizes that and is sensitive to it from our preaching and teaching as well as to our children's ministry and our ushering and our greeting and our youth ministries, our everything. And that's what we're working on. And so here's the image that I want you to go away with today, if this at all, if at all, wets your palate. And that's simply that I believe what God is asking each of us individually to be about is simply a link in the chain in His working in somebody else's life. Grab on that day. All I think God is asking you today to commit to is just to be a link in the chain of His working in a lost person's life. You know, one of the biggest myths about evangelism is today, and it's so sad people think like this, but I've heard it so many times, is that we basically think like this. We think, well, I'm responsible for the whole package. Befriending a person, sharing the gospel with them, answering all the questions, leading them to faith, discipling them. In short, we think we need to be Scottsdale's answer to Billy Graham. And so most of us who are smart say, well, I just don't know how to do all of that, and I'm not sure I'm really great at it, so I'll just come to church, go to a Bible study, serve, and be on my way. Listen, folks, God is the one who's ultimately responsible for the whole package. Amen? And it's His work in the hearts and minds of those who don't know Him yet. And all He asks is for you and I to do our part and be a link in the chain of somebody coming to Christ. You see, if this first link here represents them not knowing Christ at all and not having any interest, and this link represents them finally praying to receive Christ All God's asking each of us to do is to do our part and be one link. So what does that look like? Well, for some of you, you might just be the kind of link in a lost person's life in which you befriend them and you love them. And with very few words, you just show them that Christians are normal and that they love God and lead high-integrity, God-obsessed lives. Don't you think there's a need among our lost world for people to see Christians like that? They see us as goofy. They see us as hypocrites. But maybe your role is to show them that's wrong so that when somebody does share their faith with this lost person, they'll say, you know what, I know so-and-so over here, and they're a Christian. And guess what? They're pretty normal, and they really love me, and they love God. And what's that going to do? That's just going to boost them closer to Christ. Or maybe your link will be to actually have a cup of coffee with a lost person that you know at work or at school or a service provider, a neighbor, a coworker, a friend, a family member. And, and you're kind of a heady person, so you love intellectual things, and so you're going to sit down and answer all their questions, or at least give your best shot at it, right? And you're going to be the part of that link that though they're not ready to receive Christ yet, you're going to hang in there with them and just help answer any questions as you see fit. Or maybe you're a serving type person. Maybe you just love to serve. Again, you're more wordless in the way that you, you do things, and so your job will be just to serve somebody in need that doesn't know Christ. Love them in the name of Jesus, and, and through doing that, draw them closer to Him. Or maybe you love to invite people to events, so maybe that'll be your link. You're just a fun junkie, so when we offer these no-cringe events that are guaranteed to be really fun, you're going to go, party! And you're going to invite some lost people to it, right? And you're going to just love it all up. And again, you haven't really said much yet. You're just kind of being a link in the chain. And then, obviously, there's some of us, like your pastor, that are more verbose and love to seal the deal and put a little pressure on people. So maybe you're one of those, and you're going to be the kind of link that take somebody after all these other chains and says, okay, now's the time. Where are you at with God? Are you ready to give your life to Him? Because if not, oh well. Anyways, that was, might be your role in this, all right? 
So, so you see what I'm saying? And then maybe you're a follow-up link. Maybe you're the kind of person that just likes to take a brand new Christian and help them grow. You get the message, right? All different links. We're not asking you to be Billy Graham. We're asking you to be relational, to love people, and to be a link. Can we all do that? So maybe you're ready to commit to that today. We're going to give you a chance to do that in just a little bit. Now, let me uh, share with you the third vision initiative that we have, and that is to connect the majority of Scottsdale Bible Church attenders, or actually my spell checker caught that, maybe it should be attendees, in fellowship and or service. And by majority, we mean upwards of 75% of our Sunday morning attendance, which in our high season will be about 5,500 adults, and our goal is to connect, by the end of 2010, 75% of us in some form of fellowship and or service. And you're thinking, whoa, that's a lofty goal. Here's why, folks. Look at verses 42 to 45 again of Acts chapter 2. Man, it could not be more clear the staples of what it meant to horizontally relate as church members. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And so simply notice, I'm a reductionist. Let's just reduce it down to its two most simple principles. It was about fellowship. In other words, eating together, praying together, serving together, studying the Bible together. Fellowship, relationality with each other, and then serving. Nobody had needs. They pooled their financial as well as, I think, their energy resources together and made sure that people were ministered to both within and outside the fold. And so fellowship and service were two indispensable parts of what it meant to be a part of the church of Christ in the first century. And it's the same today. I've wrestled with this a lot over the years. And the reason I've wrestled with it is that I didn't grow up in the church. And so when I first became a Christian, I remember thinking to myself, now what is it that my church is asking of me? You ever ask that question? Like, what is it? And, and I tend to be very empirical in the way that I think. So I tend to break it down into time and energy commitment. So, you know, I got a full-time job. I got a family. I got my own hobbies and likes. What is it, God, that I'm supposed to do at my church to be a fully devoted follower and get the most and give the most out of my church? And so years ago, my first pastor, I was thinking about these things at a, at, a, at a restaurant. It was actually Big Boy in Detroit where all the spiritual things happened. So I was at Big Boy, and I'm thinking about this, and it all of a sudden hit me, and I wrote it down on a napkin, and for years I've used this. I call it the 2 plus 2 plus 2 model of becoming a fully devoted follower of Christ through your church. And this is kind of a minimalist weekly commitment of what we all need to commit to if we want to get the most and give the most out of our church. Look up here on the screen. The first thing is, is that you need to give two hours a week to worship and teaching. In other words, to showing up on Sunday morning, engaging God with your heart in worship, and then being taught the Word. And I don't know if some of you have noticed this, but I even included drive time in that two hours. Is that not generous? I mean, we have 70-minute services here, and most of y'all don't even come on time. So, if by the chance you get here, it can't take you more than two hours unless you're coming from Flagstaff or something like that. So, two hours max, and I'm not counting you now to the claim jumper, that doesn't count, two hours max to do church, right? Then notice two hours of fellowship with other believers. 
In other words, you join an enrichment class. We have like 30 of them. Or a Bible study, or a men's group, or a women's group, or one of our hundreds of different small groups. Or maybe even something in the community that's spiritual in nature. In other words, you connect relationally with other believers. Why? Now get this. So that no one walks alone. That's why. You know, sometimes people think, well, God wants me to fellowship with people I don't like because He wants me miserable. That's not true. That's not true. The reality is we have so many choices. You don't have to fellowship with people you don't like. You can fellowship affinity-wise with people you do like. But I encourage you to make it a bit heterogeneous. I mean, don't just hang around people you like, but get with the body of Christ. But the point is, is so that you don't walk alone. And so that they don't walk alone. Wouldn't it be great if the motto of your church was where no one walks alone? That's why we fellowship. And then think about giving two hours at least to service, serving those in need. Again, so many opportunities at a church like ours, everything from ushering, greeting, children's ministry, youth, missions, inner city, audio tech, singing, seniors. I mean, so many opportunities. And then there might be a few more hours devoted if you're in leadership or if you want to get more out of a particular area, and many do. But it's kind of a minimalist average of six hours if you desire to get the most out of connecting with your church. And so as I was sitting there in my uh, big boy in Detroit, I'm thinking, well, I wonder if they'll buy it. Like, I wonder if they'll agree with this and whatever. And, and I'm a lawyer's kid, so I always think of the objection to this. So I'm sitting there thinking, how could someone object to this? They could say, well, Jamie, six hours is an awfully long time. I mean, that's like six hours. I'm a very busy guy. And then I wrote this down. I thought to myself, well, I don't mean to make you feel guilty, but let's just wrestle with this for a moment. And I thought, most of us spend more than six hours a week watching TV, right? Most of us will spend more than six hours eating out. We'll spend more than six hours with our hobbies, whether it be golf or cars or whatever. We'll spend more than six hours shopping. I'm not touching that one. And we're even going to spend more than six hours working out, or at least we should spend more than six hours working out, right? And so I'm sitting thinking, my gosh, we do so many things in our lives that that take more than six hours. Wouldn't you think that at the very least we can give six hours to our soul and to God and to the church through connecting in worship, fellowship, fellowship? and service. I just think it's inarguable. And so here's the, uh, the the little symbol picture I got for you here. When I was in uh, Cleveland, my father-in-law helped me rewire um, my basement. I should rephrase that. He's the electrician. I followed him around as he rewired our basement and uh, tried not to light the thing on fire by helping him. And, uh, and, and I have the old parts from it. And just the whole idea of a socket and uh, a plug and the fact that we all know that when the two are connected, man, do things happen, right? I mean, think about what happened before electricity. I mean, I mean just life was just really difficult. But now that we have electricity, and when you connect something to electricity, energy happens, motion happens, light happens. I mean, things just, well, sparks fly, literally. That's what happens. And the point is, is that God says that if you're serious about Him and your church and you get connected, spiritual sparks will fly. In fact, sometimes that's the only way. Jesus said in Matthew 18, verse 20, He said, For two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Think about that, guys. Does that mean God is not with us when we're alone? <laughs> of course not. Of course He's with us when we're alone. But it does mean that when we connect through serving or fellowship with other believers, there is a special presence of Jesus, a special activity of God. And I've experienced that, that makes all the difference. And so that's the challenge 
before us here. And so for you, it might be joining an enrichment class. It might be joining one of our dozens of men's or women's groups. It might be joining one of our hundreds of different small groups or Bible studies. It might be committing to serve somewhere at our church. Or how about at neighborhood ministries? Or Phoenix Rescue Mission? Or St. Mary's Food Bank? Or CFCA? Or plenty of other places. Two plus two plus two. And you'll spend a lot more time eating out, shopping, playing golf, and watching TV. But if you commit to this... I promise you God will enter in in a way you never thought possible. Now, a bit more quickly, because we're fast running out of time, let me share with you our final two vision initiatives. And so here's the fourth one, and that is to nurture and develop the next generation of Christian leaders at Scottsdale Bible Church in our region. In verse 42 of our text, it says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's a fascinating phrase, the apostles' teaching, which simply tells us that they had leadership back then. They had men and women who were willing to to teach the Word of God. And it's fascinating, when you read on in the book of Acts, they passed the baton off to all other kinds of leaders as well. People like Saul and John Mark and Timothy and Priscilla and Aquila. I mean, lots of people. Like, you're going, who are all these people? Well, they were the next generation of leaders after the apostles. And so one of our commitments here at Scottsdale Bible is to nurture this next generation of leaders as well. And so we've established an elder task force on leadership. I've actually asked the elders to ride point on this. So we got some pretty strong leaders like Dave Hall, Barry Asmus, Jay Snyder, and Corey Schutnick, who are all working on what the leadership potential of our church is. And they're talking about things like unleashing lay, more lay people for leadership and developing a deacon ministry, gift and passion discovery, a leadership community. And we started to implement some of these things. We promoted some of our uh, younger pastors within to more uh, higher, not higher profile, I hate that word, but more, um, well, they just have more work to do. How do we put it that way, right? So Lucas is now leading more of our worship, starting with the 1110. And Steve Erickson's on our executive leadership team. And we're just really working hard with some of our younger leaders. Uh, we've doubled our Timothy ministry. At least it will be doubled in January. Margie started a new wild ministry called Women in Leadership Development. I spoke there in June. Eighty women in our church who are just primed for leadership. But we're moving on this level. And, and so the point is, is that leaders, and here's your picture, they, they shine the light, right? I love this flashlight. Uh, leaders shine the light. This is like a, this is like a Tim Allen flashlight. They, 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 they shine the light. And, uh, and, and so some of you can relate to that because as a leader, you know that through the decisions you make and seeking God and, and getting people to, to work with you, that you kind of shine the light on the path before us. And that's what leadership does. And if it's godly and good, then we're all in, in good graces. We're in good stead. But here's the deal. There have been some of you whom God has gifted in leadership. And I hear about you in the marketplace. I do. And I know who many of you are. And you've never led in your church. Isn't that interesting? That God's gifted you to lead, and you're known in Phoenix or Scottsdale or even regionally or nationally for being this great leader in the business world or teaching realm or school or whatever, and you've never led in the church. And my point today is maybe, just maybe, God is calling you to shine the light in your church and to be a leader here. I don't know. If He puts that on your heart, we're going to give you a chance to commit here in just a minute to that. Maybe God's doing that in you. And then lastly... Before we move to the commitment time, we need to talk about our fifth vision initiative, and that is uh, plant the North Campus with Larry Anderson. Go back to our text one last time. Let me show you something that's so cool. Remember I said in verse 47 there that it wrapped up by talking about how they increased in number day by day? I want to read for you the fate 
of this first megachurch in the New Testament because they didn't remain a megachurch for long. <laughs> it's interesting because today you have a megachurch that lasts forever. No, they didn't. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. So flip over if you've got your Bible open to chapter 8, verse 1. And let's read about what happened to this whole group of people uh, just a few months after they came together as the church in Acts 2. It says this. It says, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. I fun lovingly call this divinely enforced church planting. <laughs> That's what happened here. They didn't want to be planted, but God said in His wonderful sovereignty, He said, I want to break you up and I want to plant you. Why? So that other areas might have churches as well. And the whole cool thing about the book of Acts, you can read it on your own, is that we read about areas like Galatia and Ephesus and Thessalonica and Philippi and Corinth and, and Rome that all got churches. Why? Because God decided to break up this one church so that others might be blessed and benefit. And so the point is, whether forced or not, churches have been following this model ever since. Scottsdale Bible Church, give me another clicker, Virgil, has planted Northridge, just a wonderful church plant. We planted Desert View before I came here. Again, a wonderful church plant. I mean, to steal my wife's plant there from our kitchen table, I mean, God took a nice big plant, Scottsdale Bible Church, and, and, and planted smaller works that now are growing themselves into much bigger works. Is that not so cool? And even since in the last 20 months since I've been here, we've officially planted Mosaic, which is now Old Town Bible Church. We've sent Rance and Matt out to Peoria. They were two of our staff people, and we're heavily supporting them as they're planting Access Church. And then just last Sunday with Dan, we've planted Help Plant North Chapel over in Fountain Hills. And the point is, is that we have another church plant in, in the works here that's called North Bible Church. Many of you know it. It was our North Campus before. They run about 700 adults and children. And under Larry Anderson's ministry, they're now being rebadged as North Bible Church. And it's a great church, probably one of the most healthy churches I know of. I mean, it's just incredible. And yet they still need our help. And so I need you guys to pray. And I need you guys to also be ready to um, commit when it comes time to help North, because here's their greatest challenge as they move forward. And this is not a plea for money today. Please don't hear that. But that is that someday we need to help them find a permanent home. They're in a leased building right now in an expensive part of North Scottsdale, and uh, they're not ready yet to be able to support themselves with 700 uh, adults and kids. And so they're still relying heavily on us for support and for leadership, but we have a plan over the next two to three years to get them financially self-sufficient. But then we also need to, to get over that hurdle of finding them a permanent home. And we have no idea what we're going to do. It's obviously not a time to go into a capital campaign. We are that smart. But we also know that someday we need to help them find a place that they can call home as we did for Desert View, as we did for Northridge. So we would just ask you guys to be praying about that for us. We'll keep you posted. And again, when the time comes, we just want to keep them on your radar that we're ready to pull together as a body of Christ and, and help them get fully established as a church. So here's what we're going to do. We've mentioned five things to you here this morning. But we've mentioned family focus, evangelism culture, connection, fellowship and service, next generation of leaderships, and then the North Plant. And on your way out today, we're going to sing a song here and be dismissed in just a minute, you're going to find six stations that are just like this one here. One, two, three back there, four, five, 
six. So almost every exit door except the main ones out here. And uh, what we're going to ask you to do is that as you're leaving here today, we're going to sing a worship song, which you're going to get up right at the beginning of that worship song and be dismissed, that if you feel led to commit to any of the things that we've talked about today, maybe one, maybe five, it's between you and God, totally between you and God, we ask you to visit one of these stations and grab a card. We have five different cards that talk about the five things we talked about today and grab a stone that collates the same color as that card. And what I would ask you to do is to put this card and this stone in a place that you can see it on a regular basis and remember it. You might put the stone in your pocket so that whenever you feel for your keys or change, you have the stone there. might go on your desk. might go um, in your car, in your little change dish, but just wherever. And that when you see this stone, you remember the commitment that you're making to the family or to evangelism or to connection or to leadership or to North Campus. And uh, we have enough stones for everybody to grab five if they wanted to. This is totally between you and God, but it's a good symbolic uh, reminder of the commitment that you would make today. And again, if you're you're from another church, please grab a stone as well because you're committing to your church in these areas too. So Joe and the team are going to come out now. I'm going to lead us in a closing prayer. And then as soon as I say amen, you are dismissed as they're singing. And you can stay in worship if you want, but please dismiss them. Please visit one of the tables on your way out today, okay? Why don't you bow with me and let's pray. Father God, I thank you for just the fact that we can gather here today and uh, open up our hearts and minds to this powerful passage in Acts that talks about um, your work in that very first church and even how you want to work in our lives today. And, And Father, we have patterned ourselves in many, many ways after that first century church. We teach, we worship, we pray, we fellowship, we celebrate communion. And Lord, as a result of that, we are in awe of your moving in our midst. And so, Lord, we thank you that 2,000 years later, we have a similar experience with the risen and resurrected Savior. But Father, we also know that there are some of us who need to re-up our commitment when it comes to certain areas that you want us to be about with our church. And so, Lord, as we uh, end the service today by, by committing ourselves afresh to you in certain areas, receive this as the cry of our heart, as a worshipful part of our heart, committing once again to you and to your goodness and to your grace in our lives and even to our church. Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you that your word never lets us down. Go with us now, we pray, in Jesus' holy and precious name. We all say together, amen.